Why, you're nothing but a great big coward. You're right. I am a coward. I haven't any courage at all. I even scare myself. Look at the cycles under my eyes. I haven't slept in weeks. Why don't you try counting sheep? That doesn't do any good. I'm afraid of them. Oh, that's too bad. Don't you think the wizard could help him, too? I don't see why not. Why don't you come along with us? We're on our way to see the wizard now, to get him a heart. And him a brain. I'm sure he could give you some courage. Well, wouldn't you feel degraded to be seen in the company of a cowardly lion? I would. Oh, of course not. <laughs> Gee, that's, that's awfully nice of you. My life has been simply unbearable. Oh. <clears throat> a classic movie. Dorothy needed a way home. The scarecrow needed a brain. The tin man needed a heart. And the lion needed courage. You know what? I really believe there's a little bit of lion in all of us. At those times when I know what to do, but I don't do it, most often, more often than not, we need the courage to act on what we know. Isn't it true our life is made up of choices? They test us. But ultimately, our, li- our, our choices make up our life. Someone said it this way. We make our choices, and then our choices make us. Why is that? Because really, we're making our choices 24-7, 365. We make choices about our time. We make choices about our money, how we treat our family, how we treat people, our jobs, our responsibilities in life, our walk with the Lord. Choosing to obey is not a one-time choice or a decision, but it becomes a lifestyle of choices. Isn't it true? Sometimes it's just really easy. I mean, it's just a no-brainer. You can do it. But sometimes it's so hard due to the feelings that we have and the ramifications that could be involved with the choice. Truth is, many small choices eventually lead us to the big choices in our lives with wide range effects. It was just the week before last. Easter week, uh, right before Easter weekend, I had somebody come by and they'd moved away from the area uh, probably uh, three or four years ago. And they came by, they were just in the area, they wanted to come by and see me and say hi, update me on their life. Well, interestingly, I had done some marriage counseling with them, as well as another staff member had done some counseling with them, and other outside counselors had, had done some counseling with them as well. And as I would sit with this couple, I would go, man, I don't know that they get it. Well, because I sit there and talk to them about things, and I say, this is what you need to do, Mr. and Mrs., this is what you need to do. And they'd look at me, and they'd go, yeah, we know. Well, are you going to do it? I don't know. See, that's the two questions I oftentimes ask people. Number one, do you want God's blessing? Yeah, absolutely, Pastor. Well, then are you going to do it God's way? See, that's always the clincher. That's the kicker. Because, see, now this person that come to see me was telling me how they were divorced. They have two little children. And now they're fighting in the courts, costing them literally hundreds, maybe thousands of dollars to determine who's going to get the children for how long. And now there's such an acrimonious relationship that every time they want to make a decision about something, they have to go to court and pay out 
dollars. Why is that? Because four or five years ago, they could have made some choices that could have changed the, the tra trajectory of their relationship. Uh, but they didn't. And they thought that that one choice, simply to, to divorce and to split up, would take care of everything. And now they're finding out that that decision has some significant concentric circles that is affecting their life today. You know, loved ones, our choices throughout life have significant consequences. The Apostle James, who was Jesus' half-brother, he said it this way in his letter, James chapter 1, verse 22. He says, don't, I beg you, only hear the message, but put it into practice. Otherwise, you are merely deluding yourselves. See, the issue isn't knowing what to do. It's choosing to do what we know is right. And that takes courage sometimes to make those kinds of choices. I mean, as you study the Bible, you'll see Jesus. It says in the scriptures that literally he was tested and tempted in all things as we are. If that's true, Hebrews 4 says that he is this great high priest that understands everything that we've gone through. He understands, he empathizes with the hard choices you and I have. Why? Because he had to make some significant choices in his life as well. Think about the beginning of his ministry. He's out there. He has just been baptized, heard the words of the Father affirm him, and what is he? He's thrust out into the desert where he has to go mano on mano with Satan who threw three major temptations at Jesus. And those three major temptations, you can just about catalog every temptation we face under those three. But Jesus said, uh-uh, no, I choose not to. And then we go three years later at the end of his ministry. Listen, he's the son of God. He knows God's will, but he is faced with the most dreadful choice he would have to make. The one who knew no sin, who never sinned a day in his life, knew what was coming. He was going to have to face the cross, and the cross was, was bad enough, but what he really had to do was to take on himself the condemnation, the damnation of a universe, past, present, and future, the sins of the world. And Jesus goes from 33 years earlier being able to have the gaze face-to-face -face with his father to now in just a sh few short hours, he's going to have the father turn his back on him because this holy God cannot be face-to-face -face with sin as Jesus takes on our sin. And what's interesting, because Jesus was fully God and fully man, he comes to the garden and what's taking place? Well, there's this internal battle. His humanity was backing away, backing off, desiring not to go the way of the Father. And the question is this, what would he do? What would Jesus do? Would he go the Father's way? Would he do the Father's will? Or would he go his own way? And if you have a Bible there, I want you to read this passage to you, Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 36. This is the garden scene where we get to see this internal battle take place with Jesus. Matthew 26, verse 36 says this. Now, when Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane, he told his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. But he took along Peter 
and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. He's sharing his heart with his brothers here, with his disciples, and he says, my soul is swallowed up in sorrow to the point of death. Would, would you just remain here and stay awake with me? And going a little further, Jesus fell face down and he prayed. Remember the tension, the stress that is on him. It literally says in one of the other gospels that he started sweating droplets of blood. Now notice what his prayer is. It's not long. But he simply says this, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. What is the cup? It's the cup of death, dying on the cross, taking on the sins of humanity, being separated from the Father. I don't know how much time elapses between that period. I've got to believe there's probably got to be a little bit of time. He says, Father, let it pass from me, period. And then there comes this statement, yet, not as I will, but as you will. Well, verse 40, then he came back to the disciples and he found them sleeping. He says, Peter, listen, couldn't you just stay awake with me for one, I mean, one hour? Couldn't you just, you know, hang on, stay awake and pray so that you don't enter into temptation? And he makes this powerful statement because this is where a lot of us live when it comes to the choices we make. Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Inside, I know what I need to do. But man, outside, (laughs) I want the goodies now. And then again in verse 42, it says again, a second time, he went away and prayed. My father, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink, your will be done. And he came again and he found them sleeping because they couldn't keep their eyes open. You ever felt that way in prayer? Well, these guys, they, they couldn't. Well, after leaving them, he went away, and again, he prayed a third time, saying the same thing once again. And he came to the disciples, and he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the time is near. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's go. My betrayer is near. It's the same thing for you and I, loved ones, day in and day out. No, no, we're not going to have to die the sins of the world. But this is the question. The question is, what would Jesus do in that garden? It's the same thing for you and I. What are we going to do day in and day out with our lives? Are we going to follow Jesus or aren't we? A few years ago, I told you the story of when I had the joy of playing at a really posh resort up in Idaho. It's called, in, uh, in the city of Coeur d'Alene, it's called Coeur d'Alene Golf Course. Now, in going there, I was speaking at, uh, to our missions at our missions conference. And so I went up a day uh, early and, and one of the guys there, he said, listen, I want to take you, that lives up in Spokane, says, I'm going to take you to, to Coeur d'Alene. And uh, not only was that nice, but it was really sweet because he paid for it because it's about three and a half bills. So it's really expensive. So he takes me. And I'm thinking, wow, this is great because I've never had a caddy before, but this golf course provides you with a caddy. They should probably provide you with a car with that kind of money. But uh, they, they, they provide me with a caddy. Now, if you don't know what a caddy is, it's a person that walks with you. They know the course, and they tell you what to do and how far away you are and what's going to happen. Well, I'm not a good golfer. I'm not a bad golfer. I'm just an average golfer. So I figure, you know what, I've golfed enough. I know, you know basically what the yardage is. But I thought, this is going to be cool. I'm going to have somebody taking care of carrying my clubs around. 
So this guy, you know, he's, he's been there talking to him. He's been a caddy there for about 20 years, so he really knows this course. So we get out there, and I think, wow, this is going to be great. Well, after a hole or two, I'm, I'm not really sure I like it because I know what I can do. And so we get to this hole, and we walk out there in the middle of the fairway, and my ball's there, and, and I go, well, well, Bob, what do you think it is? He goes, oh, man, that's, that's 163. And I go, what? That's not 163. That's not a yard over 140. He doesn't really say anything except it's 163. So I thought for a second, okay, what am I going to do here? I said, I know me. I know my game. So I grab my 140 club. I grab an 8 iron. Guess what? Boom. Leave it short. He just takes my club, cleans it off, sticks it in the bag. We go to the next hole. What he does is after we drive, he runs out way out there and finds our ball in case it gets lost. And then we catch up to him, and he goes to our ball and tells us what our yardage is and goes to the next guy. Well, he goes to this one. He says, listen, 160. I go, what? That's not 160. That's got to be at least 180. Come on. I'm thinking, man, you're, you're baked from all the sun in 20 years. I didn't tell him that, but that's what I'm thinking. I says, I know my game. And he just walks away, and he goes, it's, it's, it's 140. So I pull out my 160 club, and I just air mail the ball over the green and into a bunker. And I'm just, I'm just not really happy right now. And, uh, and I'm thinking, well, maybe this guy might have something. So we get on the green, and it's a couple times, and, and uh, you know, there's Coeur d'Alene Lake that's really big there. And he goes, listen, on this green, I just want you to know, that ball looks like it's going to go left. I go, yeah, it's going to go left. He goes, but it's not. It's going to go toward the lake. And I go, okay, whatever. And uh, <laughs> so I'm on the green, and I'm thinking, okay, he's been right a few times, but th there's just no way a ball could go this way when the green's going this way. So I putt it my way, and I miss it by about 20 feet. I mean, the ball just goes, whoo. And I'm playing, and, and it's really kind of hard for me to trust this guy. And finally, I'm going along, and about midway through the, through the round, I kind of felt the Lord say to me, you know what? That's how you treat me. And I go, oh, Lord, listen, I'm just, it's, it's a resort. I'm, you know, I'm playing golf. Don't bug me, you know. <laughs> I'm a pastor, man. I'm just doing my best. And he says, no, no, you know, this is in nanoseconds. I don't know if you get, that's how God speaks to me. And he says, that's how you listen to me. And I, and I needed to make a decision during this round very quickly if I would trust the caddy in his experience or if I trust my own thinking and my own experience. See, over the years, loved ones, of walking with Jesus, I've done the same thing. I try to outguess the Lord. I try to outthink the Lord. How prideful is it that I have a better idea of what I need in that moment than Jesus Christ? who the scripture says is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. If you don't know this, hear me, God knows. I mean, that caddy spent 20 years on that golf course. He saw worse golfers than me hit the ball all over the world, and he'd go find it and tell them how far it was. And he saw better ones, and he'd be able to help them. He knew that course, walking every part of it for 20 years. And that was the first time I pointed, what in the world do I know about it? And it's the same thing with the Lord. See, I think I know my life. And the Lord says, uh-uh. You're going to have to learn, big boy, that when I say 180 yards, that's what I mean. And sooner or later, just like with that caddy, 
my ground got a lot better when I started listening to him. And it's the same thing with the Lord. When I listen to the Lord and he says 180, I'm working hard now to go, okay, Lord, 180. That's what I'm going to play. Because, see, he knows my life. As a matter of fact, he set the direction. As a matter of fact, he determined the course for you and for me. And as I've said a number of times, he is preparing you for what he has prepared for you. Now, this caddy, he never, he never offered to play the game for me. And he didn't force me to take his recommendation. He just simply shared his experience and expertise. And God does the same thing with you. God's not going to force you to do what he says. And God's not going to come down and take the shots for you. As a matter of fact, Proverbs 16, 7 says this, I will bless the Lord. Why? Because he has given me counsel. I love that. See, the Lord doesn't demand that we do what he says, but he offers us options. He says, I'm going to give you the wisdom to grow and to learn and to know what to do. And when you continually pursue me, that's when you're going to find it. See, God doesn't say, the Bible doesn't say, seek me with your whole heart. And if you lack answers, ask. No, he says, pursue me. And if you lack wisdom, ask, and I'll give it to you. Can I tell you why I think that God gives wisdom and not answers? Because I think wisdom forces us to the Bible. It forces us to be in community. It forces us to stay tethered to him than if we got answers. Listen, if, I had, if this was just like a truly an answer book, okay, wow, how do I deal? What am I going to do next week? Okay, Lord, what's chapter 26 uh, next week on? I'd go there and I'd say, Lord, give me the answer for next week. And then I'd go, great, thanks, bye. And I probably wouldn't talk to the Lord again until when? I needed another answer. But you see, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer. So I got to continually stay tethered to the life of Jesus so that I can hear him consistently, constantly, ongoingly. When he says, TR, it's 180, I say, okay, give me a five iron. I need, I need to hit that way. And can I just tell you something? I think most of us are that way. See, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him. And guess what? He will direct your paths. It's a conditional promise. If. If you trust him with all your heart and don't lean on your own wisdom, your own skills, your own vision, your own understanding, but you begin to continually and constantly say, Jesus, today, now, I invite you into the process. He'll direct your paths. He'll speak to you. He'll guide you. He'll show you the way to go. But can I tell you something? If you don't embrace that truth, willful disobedience will always bring painful, hard results. It's like the couple I was telling you about at the beginning. They, four years ago, they could have made some totally different decisions that could have changed the trajectory of their life and their marriage. And they go, it's too hard. We're not going to choose that way. And they are continuing to pay the consequences by the choice that they made. See, our daily decisions, loved ones, may seem small at the time, but they'll have far-reaching impact. Small compromise, we think. Ah, it's no biggie, but it is. 
That's why we see the life of Jesus who continually, from the time of his ministry until he died, he never compromised. He didn't cave in to temptation. Listen, temptation is simply a shortcut to get now on your timetable from the enemy of your soul something that will negatively affect you instead of waiting for God to give it to you on his timetable with blessing. I don't know if you got that. Temptation is always a shortcut. People all the time, let's live together. That's a shortcut. I see people all the time. Oh, I don't know if they really love me, so maybe if I move into them, I can prove I love them. If they can't wait for you, they don't love you, they lust you. And we think, so many people think that, that, that we can prove our love by giving ourselves to that. No, you prove your love by being able to wait. It's a shortcut. And how many times have I seen people, they get together and then they break up and, and then they're wounded and they're hurt. And that happens more than once. We take, we, we, we take something that isn't ours. When God probably was going to give it to us but in his time, when it could come with blessing. But we don't wait. We don't wait for God. See, that's why it's so important that you and I learn delayed gratification. That's why it's so important that we teach our kids at a younger age as early as we can about delayed gratification. I was watching, I was reading from what this pastor did uh, uh, a large uh, known pastor in, in, in uh, Oklahoma. And what he does now to teach his kids, he's got six kids. And what he does is he teaches them delayed gratification when they're young. He says, this is what I do. I lay out six Oreo cookies or whatever their favorite cookie is for them. And I let them salivate and look at it and watch over it. And then I go, okay, here's the deal. You can have one cookie right now or if you come and help me do some work or a project or whatever it is, you can have all six later. What's that teaching the kid? It's teaching him delayed gratification. And he tells the story how, you know, all six of his kids are different. And they negotiate and they try and bargain. But ultimately, you know, they, they get the idea. How many of us in our life need to learn some of that? Parenting. Did you know that, I mean, it's parenting, it's a hundred daily choices compounded over time over and over decisions you make in raising your kids. And I love hearing some of our young parents and some of the decisions that they're making. Um, a lot of you know I, I, I took our kids uh, this last week. It was the first time we got to have a family vacation together in years. As you know, when kids get older, my sons are 29 and 27 and, um, and, and their families, and it's just, it gets really difficult. So this was the time we finally got to do it. So we went down to Disneyland, Legoland, and, and just, you know, crazy time. Quick, crazy, fun. But I was thinking as I was working on this coming and going, when I was growing up, excuse me, when I was growing up as a pastor here, my kids were really young. And I started thinking, how much did I miss? I mean, I worked hard to make it to all their games and activities, but I remember how many times 
did they miss out on something of my life? Because somebody would call me, say, Pastor, it's an emergency. I need to talk to you. Only be a half hour, and it'd be two hours. And I'd go home. My kids were sitting on the couch watching TV, waiting for dad. I'd be going somewhere. I'd see somebody at the store. I mean, you know, and, hey, Pastor, just a minute, just, just, just a minute. It's not those people's fault. It's my fault because I made a choice to not be able to say, you know something, I'm with my family right now and I'm going to spend my time with them. I'll talk to you later or call me later or I'll call you. See, flood ones, that's what our choices are all about. So on this vacation, I, have, I got to have a little bit of time with each of my sons and I just asked them this question. I said, son, just tell me, What's your favorite childhood memory? And they would share. And then I asked, well, what's your least favorite? What was, what was something you didn't like about their ch- your childhood? What was difficult? And they were all, both of them were very kind and gracious and loving. And it's probably because I paid for everything. And uh, <laughs> so if you, if you want to ask your kids some hard questions, just pay for everything. Ask them on vacation. But they were very kind and affirming. But I thought back. Some of the choices that I made early on weren't good because I was too intimidated by people's demands. I was, wanted to please people too much instead of making the choice to please the people that matter most. See, it's so interesting. Isn't it interesting that right always seems so hard and wrong always seems so easy? You notice that? Since sin and the seems so small in the first garden, in the Garden of Eden, in paradise. That's where the tempter first came in, and he promised Adam and Eve freedom and knowledge. This is what you're going to get. This is the big payoff if you'll partake of the forbidden fruit that God said no to. Well, they fell for it. What did their actions really say? Their actions said this, not thy will be done, but my will be done. One piece of fruit. One small choice, but it turned life to death, pleasure to pain, unbroken fellowship to broken relationship. Utopia now served them up an eviction notice forever. Ah, but there's a second garden that we read about. How do we make these right choices? The answer, I believe, is rooted in this second garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. The Bible says Jesus, while fully God, he came in the flesh as fully man. We hear the first Adam fell. The second Adam, Jesus comes, and he has to make another choice in this second garden. And we see the struggle here. Oh, God, Father, if it can pass, let it. Okay, your will. And then a little bit later, God, if, do I have to take this? Okay. He's feeling this most grueling and cruel potential punishment, not just the sins of the world, but the rejection of the Father and death on the cross. And what does he do? He removes the eviction notice. And he serves notice. Life is now open for business through Jesus Christ. He came to give us salvation so that we could experience hope and life and a future hope and a future paradise that was lost. What's that? Well, that's heaven and eternity with him. What was Jesus saying in that garden? Not my will, 
but thy will. Father, thy will be done. So the question, what would Jesus do? Well, throughout his whole life, had the same answer. He would make the right choices. He would do what the Father said. So here's the question. WDJD. What did Jesus do? How could he make the right choices? And what can we learn from the choices that he made? Well, let me give you five things very quickly. Number one, Jesus held to his objectives. It is impossible to make difficult decisions and choices, loved ones, without a sense of purpose and personal destiny. Jesus knew his divine assignment. He would not be sidetracked from it or seduced by other things that gave him a lesser purpose because he knew his purpose was the cross and recapturing and redeeming humanity. You, me, every person. As you study Jesus' story, you'll see this. Every, Every offer to him was a shortcut to take his own way and not the Father's. If you read through the Gospels, especially the Gospel of Luke, you'll see this important phrase. Jesus will be talking to the disciples. He'll be talking to the crowds, almost be talking to himself, and he says this, I must be headed to Jerusalem. You know why that phrase would reappear over and over? Because he had to continually reinforce it within his own life. That's my objective. That's my purpose. That's where I'm going, and I can't lose sight of it. The crowds are going crazy. They're loving me. I'm healing people. I'm teaching them. Uh, no, that's not what I'm called to do ultimately. I've got to go to Jerusalem. Hear me, loved ones. To hold on to God's given objectives, you must wear blinders to all the attractive shortcuts that will come your way and will remove your heart from being fixed on Jesus Christ. I see too many people take shortcuts, then they have to walk out and live with the pain of the shortcuts that they took and the consequences. Here's one of the things I tell everybody, I'd remind myself every day. It is easier, it is always easier to get in than it is to get out. When I make a decision, and it's a tough decision, I go, is this going to be something that when I get in, I'm going to want to get out? And what's the cost of getting out? That'll delay your gratification if you begin to think like that. See, Jesus was all about his father's business. What? To seek and to save the lost. What is your life about? Some of you are probably sitting here and going, well, you know, pastor, I'm, I'm not a preacher. I'm not a worship leader. I'm not this. I'm not that. Then what's God called you? Maybe he's called you to be the best grandparent. Maybe he's called you to be the best parent. Maybe he's called you to be the best parent and best employee that can show Jesus to those people around you. Maybe that is your purpose. Then live it and do it and walk it and speak it and choose it every day to give glory to God and to live out what he has given you to do. Jesus, secondly, heeded his father's word. Jesus didn't make decisions based on human thinking, but he lived out and he chose on the basis of God's word. When you see Jesus, he says things like this. It is written. It is written. Have you heard? Have you heard? Did you not see what the prophet Isaiah wrote? Did you not hear what the prophet Jeremiah said? 
His life was based on the word. See, God's word answers questions and gives wisdom, wisdom that clears away the fog and confusion from the cacophony of sounds and people that we live around that are always speaking in the voices around us. Some people just need to be more discerning of the voices that you allow to speak into your life. I'm amazed at how many Christ followers will find people who, when they want to disobey and not choose the right way, they will find other people to support them and walk with them in their disobedience and kind of prop them up. And I go, you're kidding me. There's 40 other people you could have asked, but you went to that person because you know that's their weak area too or that they're so grace-oriented and they don't have a, have a scriptural backbone that they won't stand up to you and say, I love you, but that's wrong. See, there's a discipline, loved one. Scripture says this, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, discipline yourself unto godliness. Another word is train. God's not going to do it for you. You have to learn to make decisions. You have to train yourself. You know how I train myself? I've told you this probably three or four times. But this is what I do. Every week, at least three, four, five times, I will find something during the day that to say no to. And it's usually pretty small. Oh, there's a donut. Wouldn't I like to have that? Hmm. Dustin's got red vines licorice in his office. I think I'll go over there. You know, it's usually food. Something to drink or something to watch or whatever. And we're not talking about sin, bad stuff. We're just talking about, you know something? My flesh wants to do that, but my spirit needs to understand it's in control, not my flesh. So I will say no to treat myself. It's not about what you want. It's about what you need. Because you know what? What that has done in my life, it has trained me so that when I come to the big decisions, they're a lot easier to make because I'm making little ones. No, 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 no. Then it gets easier to say yes to the biggies. You've got to train yourself and discipline yourself to say no to the expedient choices so that you can say yes to the eternal choices. And most people, they struggle in life because they say yes, 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 and they've never learned no, 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 no. Next one is Jesus helped others before himself. Many people feel used at times, but being used is different than letting yourself be used. Listen, Jesus is here serving humanity. Serving means unselfishly choosing to put others first without doing it with a begrudging spirit, an unthankful heart, a resentful personage. What do you mean? See, a lot of people can serve and the whole time, man, they're just mad and upset about the way they're being treated or not being thanked or or whatever. But Jesus said this. No one takes my life. I'm not a victim. I give it up. And there's something powerful, loved ones, when you decide to serve others before you serve yourself. Yes, with boundaries, with an understanding when to say yes, when to say no. But when you have already decided in your life, I'm going to put others first. And when Jesus leads me to serve, I will do that it's amazing how much more blessed you'll experience in life. 
The people that are the most unhappy people I know are the people that never serve. And most people that don't serve are the ones that have the most time to serve. This is what I found. The busiest people are the ones that serve the most and get the greatest joy out of it. J.H. Jowett said it this way, ministry that costs nothing accomplishes nothing. See, it costs Jesus everything for you and for me. Fourth thing is that Jesus honored God's will. John 5 tells us that Jesus lived on the basis of this. I only say what I hear the Father saying. I only do what I see the Father doing. See, this is really good because it ties into the serving part. Jesus didn't heal and touch everybody, and you can't either. That's why it's so important that when it comes to making choices in your life, you really do understand Isaiah 30, verse 21, where where God says, listen, whether you turn to the right or the left, you're going to hear a voice behind you that says, walk ye in it. That's what I remember about golf. Every time I golf, okay, Lord, what are you saying? Okay, eight iron, 180, whatever. And I come into this church this morning. Okay, Lord, I know what I'm going to do but what do you want to say? Is there something else? Something different? That's God's will. See, life can be simple, but it's never easy when you follow Jesus. If you resist his will, your death, listen, if you resist his will, then you take your own destiny in your own hands. But if you follow his will, you make choices to follow him, guess what? then your future and your destiny rests in his hands. Can I tell you something? I love that because it takes a lot of pressure off me. Over the years, that's what I've learned. You know something? It's really all about him. And I can screw a lot of things up, but if I'm doing my best to follow him, guess what? He'll pretty much cover it. The last thing is this. Jesus humbly prayed. Jesus prayed. That was his way. And it was a constant reminder for you and for me that the weapons of our warfare, the weapons at our disposal are heavenly, not earthly. You can't take care of everything down here in your own mind, will, and thinking, skills, and wisdom. We need the wisdom of God. That's what Jesus is saying here. God, I don't know, Father, if I can make it, if I can do it. But once he made the decision... After he prays, this three times, he was able to do it in the power of his father. The night before the cross, he wrestles in prayer. His disciples are sleeping. But if we want to follow him, loved ones, and you want to be able to hear him say, 180 yards, go this way, go that way. You've got to have time with him, talking to him and listening of him from his word and sitting before him in simple, humble prayer, talking, listening, reading, talking, listening, reading. Ephesians 5.17 says this, don't be unwise. So what's the corollary? Well, get wisdom, get wise. How? Understand what the will of the Lord is. We understand it through his word, through our communication with him, through our talk. You want to make good choices? Do it. Jesus' way.
It will cost you. It will be hard, but it will simplify your life in the long run. Would you bow your heads with me, please? As we close, I don't know where everybody is today, obviously. God does. Jesus, it says, is really in our midst, walking through our midst, Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. And maybe there's somebody here that you've never made a commitment to Jesus Christ. I want to offer that to you today. He's been offering it to you long before here, but today I want to maybe for you to make a statement, make a stand to say, I'm going to follow Jesus. It's not simply receiving him, but it's following him. It's acknowledged that he died for your sins, rose on the third day, and loves you with an unquenchable love. But then he puts a call on your life to follow him and to make choices that honor him. And if you've never done that, I want to give you that opportunity today. Or maybe there's somebody here, you know you have strayed, and you're no longer tethered to making right choices on basis of who Jesus Christ is in your life. And you're saying, I got to get back to this. I got to get in alignment with what God wants because my life has become chaotic. It's a mess. And if you're either one of those people, I'm going to pray a prayer. And all you need to do is say, Jesus, I receive you. I acknowledge I'm a sinner. And I invite you into my life. Not to follow me, but that I follow you. If you do that today, I'm going to invite you before you leave service today that on your connections card, you would just check on there that I committed my life to Christ or recommitted my life to Christ and put it in the basket. But I'm going to pray, and you can just, in your own words, say a prayer like this. Jesus, I come and thank you that you made the ultimate choice for me. And today, I choose you the best choice, the eternal choice. And I want to follow you today. Thank you that you will forgive my sins, that you will give me direction. I will learn to tune my heart and my mind to you and to heaven to make good choices, right choices. I pray for the courage today to do that. Jesus, thank you that you are speaking to hearts, to people to adults, to male and female, right now beyond anything that I can say. That's your spirit at work here. And I pray, God, that that you would galvanize in the hearts and lives of people those things that you want to speak to them. Let them feel like today more than ever they're hearing your voice. And we thank you, Lord, that that's what you bring to our life. (laughs) It's never simple. Or excuse me, it's never easy, but it will always simplify. Thank you for that today, Jesus, in your name. Amen. As we close, I just pray that you understand the power of the choices that you make and learn from Jesus. For the benediction, the last couple of days, this is, in in preparing for this, this is the song that has gone through my mind. And I think it's because I so much need it more than I've ever needed it. And it's called Savior like a shepherd, lead us. It's powerful for me because Jesus is the great shepherd and I have the privilege of being an under shepherd. And, um, and sometimes the weight of that can get pretty heavy and I never want to lose my way from the great shepherd.
So I'm going to read you just the first stanza. This will be the benediction today. Savior, like a shepherd, lead us. Much we need thy tender care. In thy pleasant pastures, feed us. For our use, thy folds prepare. Blessed Jesus, blessed Jesus, thou hast bought us, thine we are. Blessed Jesus, blessed Jesus, thou hast bought us, thine we are. He loves you. He has chosen you. May the Lord bless you. Amen. Have a great day.